Hey everyone, back again. Today I want to talk about Immanuel Kant's critique of René Descartes' idealism. Now before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical texts, concepts, and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, you can see my more than 300 episodes I already have up. You can subscribe and see videos I release every single Saturday, sometimes another day of the week as well. If you found this as a podcast, you're going to be able to find the video of it on YouTube. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find just the audio alone as a podcast on pretty much any platform under all the same names. So you can go and check that out. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo or on TikTok at theory philosophy. Links for all such things in the description. If you want to help me out, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends who knows they might get a kick out of it. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. Just take care of yourselves first. So I think that this is important to clarify how Immanuel Kant sees himself as being different from René Descartes. So I'm just going to briefly go through each of them and explain why Kant thinks that it's important to distance himself from René Descartes. So in Descartes' Meditation on First Philosophy, Meditations on First Philosophy, including other texts, he makes the case that by thinking, he can therefore infer that he exists. And what he means by that is to say that he can't be sure of the existence of objects external to himself in experience. In the room I'm in, there are walls, there's a desk, there's a bed. All of these things I can't be sure that they exist because they only come to me through my senses. So for all I know, some evil genius, I could be in like the matrix uh, type thing, just kind of, you know, existing in a pod. And this is, these are all figments of my imagination. I don't know they're really there. So Descartes says this, or thinks about this and says, well, okay, what can I be sure of? To which he says that I can doubt everything. Every, I could say I don't believe any of this stuff exists. However, I cannot doubt the very act of thinking itself because that would require thinking. You cannot think away thought because you're always going to be thinking. So I might be in like some pod in the matrix, but I'm still thinking. So therefore, there's some part of me that exists in some kind of realm. This is what he means when he says, I think, therefore I am. Now, in the Critique of Pure Reason, Immanuel Kant says that there is a problem here. And the problem with this is that it assumes that there can be a very neat divide between your mind and your really your body in the exterior world. Now, Kant says, well, if that were the case, how can we explain the very capacity for thought itself? Because, you know, we all think with language. When you're thinking, you're thinking in words, that you've learned through experience, or you're thinking in images that you've learned in experience. So Kant is like, hmm, this is this is a limited this is a limited idea to just completely doubt the exterior world, ex- objects within within experience, to say that they can't be sure that they exist. So Kant suggests that there are two different kinds of what he calls and what is just called idealism. There's what is called problematic idealism, and this is what Descartes says, and this is the view that we are can be doubtful of the ex, uh, existence of the exterior world and things in the world. We can only be sure of our mind. And there's also dogmatic idealism that says that, no, exterior world does not exist, and figures like Berkeley embody this. Exterior world does not exist, it shouldn't even bother with it, whereas Descartes at least leaves some room for this. So Kant takes this up to say that, okay, we can work with Descartes here because we can't just completely discredit the exterior world. 
And the reason for that is because the very capacity for experience and thought furnishes our capacity for thinking, for our minds. Because there is an organic relationship between our minds and the world. As I've said in previous episodes, and I'll just elaborate on briefly here, the human mind has the capacity to furnish the world with space and time, to understand space and time as sensible forms of our intuition. And they supply the bedrock, or they are the kind of grounding for all experience in the world, of things in the world. Nothing in the world exists outside of space and time. Now, Kant is clear that space and time don't just exist out there. They are sensible forms of our intuition. They are part of what we are as humans. And other creatures, maybe somewhere else, can perceive more. Uh, you know, have a, have a broader understanding of things within space and time, of space and time themselves that are different from us, maybe. Like, I'm just speculating, I don't know. But in any case, the point being that they are part of what we are in our minds. But that is only possible, or it is caused, by some kind of effect. It is an effect that is produced by some sort of cause. That is our having experience in the world. And so there is a kind of Mobius strip type situation going on here, where the world, objects within it, furnish our possibility to have experience of those things, partly furnished by our innate capacity to perceive and engage with things in the world. Now Kant is clear though, that this doesn't mean that our engagement, our perception of things in the world necessarily reflects what those things are. He suggests that we are only privy to a phenomenon of a thing in the world, the thing that we see with our senses. But because our senses are just feeding our brains data that our brains are then deciphering, we aren't actually coming into contact with the thing in itself, what he calls the noumenon. So we only see the phenomenon, the phenomenal side of an object that lends itself to our experiences that we are able to engage with. Dogs, for example, can hear dog whistles that we can't. Does that mean the sound waves of a dog whistle don't exist? No, it just signals the fact that our sensory capacity is limited. It, it only reveals what it permits us to reveal or reveal to us. Doesn't mean that things don't exist, but that we are only privy to part of that thing or one element of that thing or many if we, you know, different senses, touch it, smell it, see it, those things that lend themselves to us in our capacity as humans. One way, way you know, we don't actually, interestingly enough, we don't have a sense of wetness to feel when something is wet. We only sense differences in temperature of something that is uh, colder that we then say, oh, well, this is a sign of it being wet we aren't actually perceiving the wetness itself. Does that mean that an object cannot be wet? No, but that we are limited in our capacity to actually understand that thing. It doesn't mean though that we cannot then infer through our understanding, through our operating minds, what that means if a thing is wet, even though we aren't actually experiencing it, which signals our capacity to actually go beyond what you know our senses permit to us, but are still nevertheless limited. How much of the universe, how much of objects don't we actually know space and time don't we actually know just because we're humans existing within it so he instead of embracing this problematic idealism where descartes is like descartes descartes is like oh well we can't be sure of the exterior world so let's just focus on the mind splitting the mind and the body you know the mind is what is real that we can't change kant proposes instead transcendental idealism which suggests that 
We do have experiences of things in the world that exist. We might not be totally tuned to what they are truly in themselves as noumena, and we might never, in fact, we will never, but we can still accept the fact that we are having a relationship with those things as phenomena. And we can still extract certain truths, empirical truths within the world from these phenomena that can extend beyond those things themselves, like in the case of feeling wetness. Like we don't technically feel it, but because we know through science and whatever of this phenomenal experience, what it actually is or what part of it is, it's not the end of the story by determining its wetness. There are possible other ways to understand it that we have no idea about, but we can go beyond that. He suggests that as uh, you know, just one possibility, we can then therefore suggest that that first phenomenal experience is enough to point us into new and interesting directions. Now he focuses on mathematics as just one way, one exercise of doing this, of taking things that don't actually exist in experience, like geometry. Like when have you ever seen a triangle in the world, like a perfect triangle? We create these things and with them we are able to actually engage the world in new and interesting ways and learn more about it through our minds. But this only comes about through the possibility of having experience. So transcendental idealism, as opposed to problematic idealism like Descartes, says that we can't just totally bracket off the exterior world. Can't. We have to embrace it and see what possible science, what possible newness can come out of it, or what beauty can come out of it, knowing this limitation and seeing what we can do with it while acknowledging, you know, we aren't going to get to the truth of a thing because we're just, we're limited. And just to close off, he contrasts this with transcendental realism, where transcendental realism says that, nope, all those things in experience, totally true. Space and time exist out there, totally true. The problem with that, though, for Kant is that if space and time weren't just sensible objects or forms of our intuition and they existed out there, then we could not be sure that all people would have the same possible understanding of them. They would be subject to change, they'd be subject to mutation, people would exist in the world not actually knowing about space and time and would then have to learn about it. But you aren't born needing to learn about space and time, you have an innate capacity, like babies with object permanence, of knowing when an object moves. It's movement through space and you understand that. If you didn't know what space was innately, then you wouldn't, it would, that would be the scariest thing on earth if a thing moved and with time as well, like it would need to happen as a function of time. Something moving through space has to always happen in time. And yeah, that was just in case anyone's curious about the real distinction between Descartes and Kant or Kant's issue with Descartes while also being indebted to Descartes, of course. Uh, but yeah, if there's anything I excluded, anything I got wrong, love to hear about it. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. Tell me if you, do you buy it? Do you think, is Kant giving us something worthy of attention here? Or does it not matter? You know, let me know. And on that note, see you on Saturday.